You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, a weekly exploration of digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. We've all felt it. The ringing frustration that pulses through our bodies. You're stuck in traffic with no end in sight. Your tire blows out. You see your car insurance payment continue to climb. You're spending a significant amount of your income on a car that you don't love and doesn't show you much love back. Or maybe you're frustrated by train delays or crumbling bus conditions. If you're in North America, you know all too well that our public transportation system is neglected in favor of personal options like vehicles. And none of the big promises made to try to improve these systems by Silicon Valley CEOs ever seem to deliver. For decades, we've heard about self-driving autonomous vehicles, relieving drivers of the burden of driving their own cars. Further, the rise of the electric car has made promises to help the environment, but the prices of these vehicles and other hidden costs block us from moving forward. It's increasingly difficult for people to get ahead or to get anywhere. Meanwhile, Silicon Valley CEOs like Elon Musk promise cars, shuttles, and tunnels that will help fight climate change and improve efficiency. But all too often, these promises fail to deliver. Why is it so difficult for these promises to be kept? Were the promises ever truly realistic? What is the ideology that fuels Silicon Valley CEOs? How can we imagine a more accessible and equitable transportation future? We're thrilled to welcome back the host of Tech Won't Save Us, Paris Marx, to the Digital Void podcast. Marx's new book, The Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, explores these questions. We had a fantastic time and learned a lot diving into these questions with Paris Marx, and we hope you enjoy it too. Here's this week's conversation with Paris Marx. Have you been on the loop? Any of the no. test the loops? Okay. <laughs> I, I've avoided those. I've never been in a Tesla. I've been in an Uber vehicle once in my life. Wow, nice. Yeah, I, I kind of avoid the services as much as I can. <laughs> that, that's good. Uh, so I made the mistake of using the system. And I want it was more out of a mor- morbid curiosity. Yeah. Um, I went to the Las Vegas Convention Center for the National Association Broadcasters Convention. Okay. I, I, I'm a TV professor. And so every year I go and present here. And the convention center is... I, it's massive, all right? It's like it's a mile and a half or 1.2 miles across. And they built this new part, the West Wing, across the street. And it's like where a hotel used to be or something. And the loop is underneath it. And so they they were making a big deal out of it this time because it's the first conference back from COVID. And I'm about to cross the pedestrian walkway. It's just a, It just crosses over the street as a bridge. And as I'm about to cross it, I asked the guy, I was like, am I going the right way? I've never been to the West Building. It's never, it didn't exist three years ago when I was here last. And he goes, yeah, but you could go and take the loop. <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh, oh, okay. I go, well, how long's the loop? He goes, well, it's a two minute ride across the street. I was like, okay, how long's the walk? He's like 10 minutes, but I'm, I'm here. How far is the loop? He's like, oh, about 10 minutes that way. <laughs> <He> pointed backward. <laughs> so I walked and went to it. So I, I avoided it for the majority of the time, but finally I want to go see. I was like, how long would it take? So I walked to the door and it was a 40 minute wait to get on the loop. No way. (laughs) Everybody wanted to try this thing. So I was like, I'm not taking this. I'll continue to walk. Well, I finally tried it. 
And just like your book details, it is a tube in the ground uh, with fancy colored lights. And it is a driver in a Tesla that drives 35 miles per hour through a tunnel <laughs> from one end to the other. And all I could think after getting in this Tesla and watching the gullwing doors close and all of them tell, yelling at us, a lot of yelling, don't get in the way of the car, don't stand in the way, don't do this, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. And finally, we get in this car that goes into the hole and pops out on the other end to you, you have to get an escalator and then walk 10 minutes back to the convention center. And so all I saw this was, was an advertisement, a physical space advertisement for the company. And so I would love to talk to you about how your book, your your excellent book, details how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the point where somebody decides they want to dig a hole in a desert when there's three-dimensional travel already in existence, and it's just basically a real-life immersive commercial with purple lights? Yeah, what is the underlying ideology that fuels this? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear you describe that. Like, obviously, I haven't been in the loop itself. But like, as soon as I saw the videos, I like thought of Disneyland. And like, you know, you're just going on this little ride in this little tunnel. And like, how different it is from like the initial promises that Elon Musk was making about like what the boring company and the loop were supposed to be like it was supposed to be hundreds of layers of tunnels under the city of Los Angeles with these like elevators under on street parking spots that you were going to use to like drive not not only your Tesla but any car onto these platforms to take you down and like shoot you autonomously across the city at like 150 miles per hour or something like that and like now it's like this little rinky dink tunnel at the Las Vegas <laughs> Convention Center where like you have this you have someone driving you like as you say 35 miles an hour down this like tunnel with glowy lights and it's like you know people fell for this what <laughs> yeah and and not only that but the technology used to make this happen is pretty impressive like building a tunnel under the Las Vegas desert is is a neat concept However, it's not at all what I think I was personally sold on or the idea of what I think a lot of my friends had read about or even seen or when they started fanboying the concept. But there is the ideology that underlies this that I think we now take for granted. I think we now have baked in the concepts that you write about at the beginning of the book about the Californian ideology and Silicon Valley's ideology. So how did we, as and we being the royal way, the pe people, how did people get sold on the idea that this is how it was supposed to be? How did that become so immersed part of our subconscious? Yeah, I think it's fascinating, right? Because I do describe it, I guess, a couple different ways in the book or like pull from a few different threads, right, to kind of illustrate how... The, these whole ideas came to dominate how we think about technology and, and certainly transportation as the tech industry has moved into that. And, you know, as you were saying, I think the Californian ideology is particularly instructive, right? And, and even pulling from the work of Fred Turner in From Counterculture to Cyberculture and what he outlines with kind of the libertarian turn, you know, in the Bay Area, in the tech industry around the 70s. Um, and so like you have these particular ideas that emerge from that period about the power of personal technology and how these forms of technology are going to empower the individual. And when you empower the individual, you can change society in that sort of way, right? Because this particular libertarian strand or the counterculture wasn't the strand that was really focused on political action and like demonstrating to force political change through, you know, the leadership and, and what have you through the political system, but rather was focused on kind of individual transformation as a way to 
see society change, right? And I think we can see that that was, I don't know, I would say it was pretty naive, I think, and not a correct read of what was going on. But then we see those ideas be kind of adopted and, and kind of brought into the tech industry because of Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog that then gets a lot of traction among the people who would kind of come to form many of these tech companies in the 80s and 90s. Steve Jobs, obviously, is a is a very prominent example of that. And it, when he is pushing the personal computer, the, the Apple computer early on, he's very much framing it along those lines, that this is a machine that is going to empower the individual. He'll even say in the way that the automobile you know, empowered the individual in the past and that it's in contrast to the mainframe computers that empowered these hierarchies and these these corporations. But now the personal computer is for us. It's going to empower us, the individuals. And then those ideas get blended into the Reagan neoliberalism that's emerging in the 1980s as well. And so you have these kind of libertarian individual freedom ideas. You have these ideas about the power of technology. And then that gets brought into kind of the neoliberalism of the time, the idea of we need to rely on the free market you know, taking these actions in the market is how we change society. The kind of history of the tech industry itself coming out of all of this public investment is downplayed and kind of disappeared because it doesn't fit the narrative, even as the tech industry is getting a ton of additional public support in that period to counter Japan because Japan is the new rising like tech and electronic superpower. And then the only thing I'd say about that is when we kind of continue threading that through, when we look at um, the tech industry and the solutions that it promotes, particularly in transportation, but I would say much more broader than that. And that's drawing from a concept that Jarrett Walker outlines called elite projection, where you have these people who are leading many of these tech companies who come from particularly privileged backgrounds, who are mainly white men, who obviously have a particular experience of the world. And so they are looking at the world as they see it, seeing what the problems that they encounter are, and then looking to develop tech solutions to deal with those specific problems and assuming that if they solve that problem that they are specifically dealing with, that they perceive as a problem, then that is also a problem for everyone else. And you're solving these problems for everyone, right? So Elon Musk gets stuck in traffic. He sends a tweet to say, uh, I'm going to bore some tunnels to, to get out of traffic. And the assumption is this is what's actually going to fix traffic for everybody instead of just you know, making some exclusive roads for Elon Musk, or as we now see it's turned into you know, just a joke Disneyland ride that's a promotion for Tesla in Las Vegas. I think one of the aspects that is important for people to focus on in our present, which again, I think is Thanks to Elon Musk's recent activities and even the Facebook papers uh, and even Teal's political uh, shift uh, has actually given us a little bit more clarity as to the misguided approach to this. You mentioned in there that the slogan that Facebook has, but really applies to the entire Silicon Valley region, move fast and break things as an ideology of building first, but before thinking of it. And whenever I hear that phrase, I always think about the danger to people, like break things. I think things isn't really well defined. And so I think that's like something as part of the ideology that's dangerous, as you explained about exclusion, how the white male privilege of this is just really focused on a very ableist perspective and, and leaves out people of color, uh, urban communities, and people with disabilities who may or may not have mobility or not. And I think that is something that is often overlooked because the dominance of the structure, like I think because people's iPhones work, <laughs> it just simply makes us think, oh, all tech will do the thing that's supposed to fix the, the quote unquote problem. 
that's there, even though we don't really understand that there's a problem because someone gave the solution before the problem existed. And I, I find that pretty fascinating for it. And so when you were putting this together, you did a lot of really great historical contextualities with this. And I, I found that to be really, really great to kind of frame out where we are and how recent a lot of these ideologies are. And and while you mentioned neoliberalism and, and Reagan in the 80s, I really think it was the popularity of Facebook and the overwhelming tech industry of digital that also applies to vehicles. So how does the physical structure of a vehicle relate to the digital that is there? And what does that do when it, when it comes to apps or ride sharing or exploitation? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And if I can just pick up on your point about the move fast and break things just for a second. Yeah, please. Like, I yeah. think it's so interesting because you think of break things in the context of transportation, you know, you're probably breaking people, right? If you are not really paying attention to the type of solution, quote unquote, that you're deploying into the world. And, you know, we can see with the autonomous vehicles, whether it's the Uber crash in 2018, the ongoing kind of Tesla crashes that we're seeing. I think the regulator in the US is up to like 30 odd crashes that it's now investing and some of those have resulted in people dying, right? Because these Teslas on the autopilot or the full self-drive beta or whatever are you know, not functioning as Elon Musk would lead you to believe. Um, and so those are really physical problems that get ignored in the idea or, or the hope that these technologies are going to deliver. And then I think I would say beyond that as well, as you say, we have these Facebook papers and I think, you know, you can go back to like the tech lash in 2015, 16 to say, oh, that kind of like reined in some of that mentality maybe, right? You know, there had to be more consideration of the broader impacts of these tech products because people realized that letting the tech companies off the hook for so long was probably a problem. And I think what we've seen in the past couple of years is a desire to reassert that vision of technology, that desire to move fast and break things, in particular with the Andreessen Horowitz um, essay on its time to build and that kind of um, idea that like we need to be builders, we need to be empowering builders. And then you can see that being picked up by many people, but in particular by Mark Zuckerberg when he faced the criticism from these Facebook leaks that came out last year from Francis Haugen. As he was introducing the metaverse, he had a couple minute video just ahead of that, where he basically said, you know, there are some people who want to tear us down. There are some people who don't want to think about the future and want to focus on the present. Well, we make mistakes sometimes, but, you know, I'm focused on the future. I'm focused on the people who are building the future. And those are my people, like kind of like a, a really forceful pushback against the criticism that he was facing. And so I think that's really important when we think about, you know, what's going to happen moving forward. But sorry, to come back to your your question around the automobile, you know, I would say that for what, over a decade, we've had this narrative that the tech industry is disrupting, right? It's disrupting society, is disrupting what happens. And that bleeds into transportation and what they're doing with transportation. So the idea is, oh, Uber and Tesla and all these other companies are disrupting the transportation system. But are they really doing that? Like they're really just trying to look at the transportation system that we have that is dominated by the personal automobile where we are all kind of stuck in our cars or for the most part people are, um, particularly in North America, Australia, you know, those sorts of I guess like settler societies really um, that were, you know, built up more recently and expanded more recently. But certainly, you know, there's still a ton of cars in China and Europe and everywhere else as well, right? Because the car is really positioned as the sim symbol of modernity, right? If your country is really, you know, moving forward is developing, you need to have the car because that's one of the primary symbols of it because, you know, of the propaganda that's existed for, for decades. Um, and so, 
rather than really disrupt the transportation system, the tech industry's kind of approach to transportation has been to find ways to integrate itself into this existing system to be able to make its own money off of it, right? So Tesla is going to electrify the car. You know, certainly that's going to have some environmental benefits. Maybe we can get into the the ways that maybe it's not as great as it's put forward. Um, I'm kind of critical of some of those narratives, not to say that I'm pro fossil fuel cars or anything like that. And then, you know, the idea that, okay, you know, you're going to access a vehicle by hitting a, a button on your phone through the Uber app, and that's how you're going to access the car but we're still going to have cars or, you know, a computer is going to drive the car now instead of you as an individual. Everything is still about the car. The one possible exception to that is micromobility. And if you want, we can discuss that a little bit more and why I think it's a little bit different with that specific proposal. But the car really plays an important point in the history of disrupting the transportation system and all these interests around it in getting the state to entrench it, right? To really rebuild the transportation system, to rebuild our communities around the automobile, to force people to have to buy them, to have to use them to get around. And so naturally, if you're thinking about actually disrupting things now, you need much more than the corporation or the technology in order to do that. You need the state as well to you know, participate in this large-scale project and I don't think there's really a desire to see that happen. There's just a desire from tech companies to kind of extract their bit of the profit from this really profitable system that everyone is forced into. Yeah, I would actually like to talk a little bit about micromobility in a bit. What I'd love to talk about is something you you mentioned that I always think about as a pedestrian, before we get into micromobility, because this also has to do with pedestrians on the sidewalk, is the idea of like jaywalking as negative car propaganda, how jaywalking itself has become like criminalized because autonomous vehicles or machine thinking that is incorporated into this. And I love the part of the book where it was talking about what does it mean when we have a vehicle that's supposed to be part of the future that doesn't yet exist? And why is it okay for a company like Tesla or Uber or any of these companies to beta test a product in our physical space, when we're A, being shamed for jaywalking, and B, not being aware of the fact that some vehicles are being driven by a robot, and that hasn't been tested at scale. Where's the permission? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's wild, right? That this has been allowed to happen. And I think it speaks to like larger problems with the way that governments and regulators have dealt with tech companies who have kind of deployed these various tech solutions over the past decade or so and how you know the uber files now that are are being published right now are kind of reinforcing how um, willing many governments were just to kind of let these tech companies run roughshod over regulations laws what have you to, to remake things because there was a belief that this was the future and so you know i think when we're thinking about jaywalking and these ideas like you know, just to briefly go back, like it is interesting to look at when the automobile is emerging in like the early 1900s, but particularly in the 1920s when it's becoming a bit more dominant. It's very much not something that you're used to seeing on the street. It's not something that fits within the norms of the street at that time because it's new, it's emergent. What How the street works in that period is that you have people who are walking on the street, you have people who are taking bikes, you have people on the streetcars, you have people in the carriages, you have little vendors along the side of the street with their their own carriages who are selling things right um like it's very much not the case that that the street has always been made for the car it's always made sense the norms have always aligned with it that was not the case 
like those norms had to be created for this industry that developed around the automobile, you know, the auto companies, the oil companies, the suppliers to the auto companies, the construction companies that would build out all the roads and communities associated with it and on and on and on. Um, you know, when those interests really came together and kind of pushed for this vision of the future, right? You know, you're talking about the pedestrians. Well, pedestrians back then really opposed this move to remake the streets, to push them off the streets, to make the streets for the automobile. Peter Norton, who I pull many of these details and examples from, really details how there were movements that were created by people in cities to oppose the, the automobile and its takeover of the streets, because particularly in that period, the automobile was a luxury product. It was a small percentage of the population who would have been able to access it. And slowly over time, it became more of a mass product. But at that time, you know, it really was not. And so it was, you know, residents of cities, particularly young women and children who were being mowed down by cars that were newly arrived in the city, right? And so one of the the responses of the auto industry to that, besides, you know, creating a lobby, going to the government, getting governments to remake the norms, physically reconstruct the streets, but Peter Norton calls it also a social reconstruction, the changing of people's ideas around the street. And part of this is to change the idea that you can just cross and walk anywhere in the street, that the street is a place for pedestrians as well, but rather that doing that is called jaywalking. And that's a term that makes that makes a reference to like, you know, you're a hick, like, you, you know, you're, you're from outside the city, you don't understand how city life works. Um, and, you know, if you if you really understood the cities, you'd know that you have to cross at the crosswalk um, because that's where it makes sense. Right. And so then if we kind of fast forward, obviously, those ideas have been entrenched now for many decades, for basically a century. Um, you know, it's just normal for people to assume, uh, yeah, you cross at the crosswalk, not like anywhere else. Right. But now as these autonomous vehicles are coming along, as you're saying, as they are not developed, they have not reached a place where they can actually do what they were supposed to do when we were promised them a decade ago. Right. Um, um, when Sergey Brin was saying how uh, autonomous vehicles were going to take over, were going to be around in five years, when Elon Musk started promising the same thing, Uber and Travis Kalanick as well, all these companies were kind of created around it. And then, you know, had to reset expectations in 2018 after an Uber vehicle finally killed somebody. And so I think that it's hard to say exactly because I feel like there are different opinions and views on the autonomous vehicles. But I feel like it's it's quite easy to recognize that if the autonomous vehicle is actually going to work in any meaningful way, is actually going to get you from where you're going to need, from where you want to go to, you know, where you need to go in a reasonable time, then pedestrians are not going to be able to get in the way of the autonomous vehicles, quote unquote autonomous vehicle, because you're not going to get the level five autonomy that can work everywhere, that can navigate every situation. Rather, what you're going to get is more of the level four autonomy that can do a lot of stuff in a geo-fenced location, um, but will probably still need either the driver or like passenger or whatnot to take over or some kind of remote driver to take over digitally to kind of navigate these different scenarios that it's not going to be able to figure out. And so that potentially means that it's going to require a new level of ensuring that the streets are kind of cleared and left open for these particular vehicles. And that could mean a lot more kind of actions that are hostile to pedestrians in a moment, I think it's worth saying, when deaths on the road continue to soar, particularly in the last few years, and how pedestrians are feeling the brunt of that increase in the deaths on the road, um, in part, I would say, because of increased distraction and things like that, that we're seeing from some of these technologies that don't work as the way or as they promise, but also because people are driving faster, also because 
vehicles are bigger and bigger with these massive SUVs and trucks and things that are increasingly dominating the roads. So there are a lot of problems there. <laughs> yeah. Two things what you just sent, mentioned is a lot of my students are very shocked when I show them those colorized videos that people find popular on Twitter, <laughs> like San Francisco or wherever. And there's people everywhere yeah. walking in between horse carriages, cars, trolleys, and there's just people. And they're just there. You could see their the fear. There's like, oh my gosh, they're in the road. You know, fifty years before that, uh, one generation previous, boats were the main ma- the way of traveling. You know, it's like <laughs> now you're getting trains and and roads are not, no longer accessible just by horses. It's like, yeah, of course yeah. they're going to walk in the roads. I'm mean, like, that's where where else would they go? But I think the 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 autonomous vehicle is also has the problem of lock-in, uh, which is that it looks like a car. For all this idea of like three-dimensional design and thinking outside or innovation that Silicon Valley promotes, it still wants to make autonomous vehicles look like cars. In the current style, it, it actually probably won't work in its current format unless there's a 100% overhaul. And obviously that's you know, we'll get to the fossil fuel industry in a bit, but it's like that's, um, you know, it's obviously going to take either a collective change to switch that over or an innovative remix that would be beneficial to capitalism. And so I just I always like sad when I see autonomous vehicles that are like, well, that's a car. I mean, <laughs> you could have made anything and you chose a car, you know? Yeah, it's. <laughs> I find it really frustrating, to be honest. Like we've had this idea of the autonomous car kind of occupying space in like the collective imagination for over a decade now, right? Where at a moment when we really did need to start acting and really starting to change the way that we move, you know, address the transportation sector's contribution to climate change, to emissions, even address like the larger problems that have existed in the transportation system for for much longer, whether it's local air pollution, whether it's the deaths on the road that are now getting much worse and and many other things, you know, the, the, the way that they forced us to redesign our communities in a way that kind of spreads the population out, people aren't close together, you know, you're far away from the services you need to reach from the people that you want to see all these sorts of things, right? And so there was an opportunity to start to act on those things well over a decade ago. And instead, we had these tech companies come along and say, actually, no, you know, you don't need to challenge the place of the car within the city, the, the dominance of the automobile. Actually, all that you need is these new automotive technologies that are going to update the car and kind of solve all of these small problems of the car, whether it's the electric car that's going to solve the climate problem, whether it's the autonomous car that's going to solve the road deaths or the, the traffic as well, or the Uber, which kind of bleeds into the autonomous car is going to solve your need to own a car because then you're just going to be able to rent from a fleet. You know, all of these technologies are going to solve all these things. So you don't need to worry about the problems of the car, the downsides of the car that have built up over such a long period of time, because actually our technologies are going to solve that. You don't need to deal with the politics. These are apolitical solutions. We can just implement these, no problem at all. You don't need to deal with interest groups or what have you. You know, we can solve the problem then they don't solve the problem. Everything has basically gotten worse since then. But, you know, we've missed a decade, basically. There's a lot of promises associated with electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles. But as Jamie and you allude to, there is the underlying issue of having a transportation system built upon automobiles. Why won't electric vehicles address the underlying problems of this transportation system? Yeah, um, it's it's a great question. You know, I, I like electric vehicles like I like the idea of electrification, right? I think that it's certainly one of the pieces that we need in order to address the transportation system contribution to climate change, right? But the narrative that we have had now for well over a decade, the first decade of the 2000s, you know, you have the Al Gore documentary, um, you have that documentary who killed the electric car, you have the rise of Tesla in, in that moment as well, um, all based on this kind of 
I would say like liberal environmentalist idea that one of the ways that we solve the climate problem is by replacing all of our fossil fuel cars with an electric car. This kind of personal action that we can all take just by buying a better car, um, that is going to inherently solve the problem. And if you go back to, to that time, um, like rewatching that documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car, there's a, there's a big desire to just completely dismiss any possible criticism that can be made of the electric car as though, you know, it's some like ridiculous idea from the fossil fuel industry. And it's like, no, like that's not true. And as we increasingly get to this point where more electric vehicles are being sold and, and created, like we can see more and more of those problems, they're becoming much more visible to us in this moment. And so what we see with Tesla, especially recently, is Elon Musk very much promotes it as though like he said in like a, a leaked text message to, to Bill Gates recently that Tesla is like the company. It's not a direct quote, but he basically says Tesla is the company that's like done more than any other company in the world to solve climate change or whatever. Right. And it's like, no, dude, like you really have not. And meanwhile, he's blasting himself into space and completely mitigating the effects of all of the work he's done with Tesla. A absolutely. Right. Like you're building luxury cars that like are very poorly made. A lot of your customers like replace them frequently. Um, since they're luxury vehicles, many of your customers will own multiple vehicles. So you're not actually replacing all the miles driven of an internal combustion vehicle. Like the real benefit of the electric car would come from like some regular average commuter who like drives to work every day, replacing their fossil fuel car with an electric car and replacing all of those miles that they're driving, right? But if you're just buying a luxury electric car, one of the issues with the electric car is that like its initial production emissions are much higher than an internal combustion engine vehicle because the battery, you know, is very emissions intensive. It requires a lot of minerals to be mined elsewhere in the world to come into that car. Um, and so the benefit of the electric car comes after you've driven it for a certain, you know, number of miles. And that varies based on where the battery is made, where the vehicle is produced, the, the kind of energy mix of the place that you're charging it up, a whole range of factors. So I can't say exactly how long it is, but the less that you're using that electric car, the less of the environmental benefit that you're getting. And the more often you have to replace it, if it's poorly made like a Tesla, the less kind of you can consider it an environmental sort of thing. But then I would also say that like the electric car is still a car, right? Yes, it might remove the tailpipe emissions of the vehicle, but there's still a whole other load of problems with that. There's the environmental impact of extracting all those minerals to go into the car, of creating the energy that's required to power a car because you're still moving like this really heavy vehicle. An electric car is even heavier usually than an internal combustion engine vehicle because the battery is really heavy. Um, so, you know, a bit more energy there to, to power it. Different kind of energy, not saying that it's worse and, and emits more than a, an internal combustion engine vehicle. Don't get me wrong there. And then you're not solving the air pollution. Much of the local air pollution actually comes from the tires the brake pads kicking up dust that's on the road. You also have these issues around, you know, how we build communities around cars. Like none of that gets solved and the suburbs are quite a, a not a very energy efficient uh, way of living, right? You might want rural, you might want urban, but suburban is kind of the worst in between if you're thinking of what's, what's going to work for the environment. So yeah, electric cars, I think they're part of the solution at the end of the day. But if we're actually talking about a sustainable transportation system, it's not how many people are you moving from an internal combustion vehicle to a battery powered vehicle. It's how many people are you taking from those and getting up, like getting rid of their cars altogether, putting them on transit or a bike or 
you know, on even on their feet and, you know, just getting those cars off the road as much as possible. Yeah, I, I like the way that you contextualized the visible problems and the invisible problems, because the visible problems are maintaining, upgrading or trying to accommodate roads for cars rather than humans and creating a less accessible and less equitable Western society. And then there's the invisible problems specifically associated with mining and labor. And um, you, you briefly mentioned it, but can you go a little bit into the cobalt mining and the labor associated with uh, extracting rare earth metals to produce these cars and the human and environmental toll of that mining? Yeah, like it's absolutely massive, really. And it's something that's easy to ignore because most of the time this extraction is not taking place near our communities in the West. That's not to say that there aren't mines in North America or Europe. There certainly are. And there is a push to expand the number of mines that are, you know, within North America and Europe in order to supply um, the energy transition, the electric vehicles in particular. But regardless of how many mines we do end up opening in North America, Europe, Australia, most of the mining for these vehicles for the so-called green transition is going to take place in Africa, Asia, Latin America. Like that, that's just the reality of it. The International Energy Agency estimates that if we do go down this path of this green transition that is really focused on replacing fossil fuel vehicles with electric vehicles, rather than getting people out of vehicles, we're looking at increases in uh, lithium production that will be necessary of up to 4,200%. Um, we'll also be looking at increases in the necessary amounts of cobalt and nickel up to 2,000% increases for those. So it's really huge amounts of minerals that are going to need to be extracted in order to supply this transition that is going to happen, the one that we're being proposed, right? And I don't think that we actually really realize the material scale of that. And so, you know, as I was saying, some of these minerals actually, <laughs> let's be real, the, the extraction of basically all of these minerals um, have huge consequences for the local environments, for the communities that surround them, for the workers that are doing that extraction in places like Latin America, which is poised to be where a lot of future lithium comes from in the uh, lithium triangle, it's called between Argentina, Bolivia and Chile. There is kind of a salt flats where a lot of this lithium is extracted from. There are indigenous communities that are around that. They say that as a result of the extraction, that their water table has been lowered because the, this extraction requires so much water. And so then their communities lose access to water. They don't get the benefits from the production that they were promised early on when these companies came to them and said, you know, we're going to make this production here, but you're going to benefit from it too. And then these workers suffer in really terrible conditions when they when they do a lot of this extraction. If local people get hired at all, often it won't be, you know, those local people who actually get the jobs. But then, you know, you also said the cobalt mining. A lot of that comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC. There's a particular like part of the country where a lot of that mining takes place, where it's described as just being like really decimated, highly polluted. But, you know, people are drawn there from the economic opportunity that comes out of it because there's not a whole lot of other opportunities, but you might be able to make some money in in the mining. The conditions there are notably really bad. Um, you know, people die doing this mining. People get horribly injured doing this mining. In recent years, there was a lawsuit filed against Tesla, Apple, Dell, some other technology companies um, because of 
children who had died in the mines um, extracting that cobalt because that cobalt not only goes into electric cars, but also into many of our electronics. And yeah, I don't believe that that case is resolved yet, but effectively the parents of these children who are harmed and killed in these mines said, you know, they went into these mines that were controlled by Glencore, which is a major mining company based in the UK that Tesla has deals with to get cobalt for its factories, essentially died on the site. So it's very dangerous work. And so, you know, that's just to say that there's a lot that goes into making these cars, a lot that we don't hear about, that we don't, you know, talk about, that our governments don't want us to know about, and these companies certainly don't want us to know about. And as these things become more visible, because, you know, the number of electric vehicles being produced is increasing, and so these things can't stay invisible forever, people are becoming more aware of what's happening, there's already a desire from the industry to start to you know, kind of greenwash what is going on in these mines to say, actually, you know, we are dealing with these problems. It's ethical, you know, mining that's going on here. Um, we're dealing with water issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, in the same way that we would have certain oil companies tell us that they're extracting clean oil or that, you know, their oil is like low emitting and, you know, is, has all these great reasons that it shouldn't be shut down. I think that we, we should see what the mining companies are saying is very much like an, an attempt at greenwashing as they have this huge opportunity to make a ton of money with all this extraction, all this demand for additional minerals that can come of this transition that they're preparing for. And I think scale extends beyond vehicles too. I like to go back to micromobility here. I just um, I just spent a month teaching a study abroad course in Rome and there's scooters everywhere, like everywhere. Uh, and and it's created not just the scale of uh, autonomous vehicles, e-vehicles and everything, that those batteries are in those bird scooters too. Like all of them are batteries. They're just batteries all over the road and batteries all over the sidewalk and batteries in the rivers. Towns that have, or cities that have adopted scooter rides or micromobility have a weird secondary labor force of people who have to fish these things out of the water because for some reason that is beyond me but i guess understandable on a city scale is they throw them in the rivers quite often amsterdam in particular with bicycles and rome in the tiber and one of the things that i think uh you, you touched on here which, which made me laugh a little bit but also made me like sad the bird app i took the scooter once or twice while in this while in rome and the bird app requires you to park in a specific spot but most of the other apps there's like six apps and, and all these types of scooters, they don't care. You can just dump them. You just turn them off wherever. But at the end, the app rate says a little note to you. Thank you for removing another car from the road. You know, it's like, thank you for saving the environment. And I think to myself, but I would have walked. You know, like it wouldn't have, I was in walking distance. These scooters don't make it, they're not mass transit. You know, they're not buses. They're nothing that makes it feel that way. So talk about greenwashing here, but also about the propaganda put into people's heads of micromobility that makes you feel as if you're making a quote unquote a difference, but you're really just participating in the larger scale beyond the vehicle space. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there have obviously been studies on the environmental impact of micromobility of these dockless scooters and dockless bikes. And they generally find that these are not improvements to, <laughs> to you know, the, the environmental contribution of the climate system in many cases would be better for you to hop on a bus or, or a subway or something to get where you're going to need to go rather than use one of these vehicles because they are so disposable because they are replaced so often they are destroyed so often and so yeah you know we were kind of sold this narrative back in a number of years ago when these services started to emerge that you know by placing these bikes and scooters all over the sidewalks all over the streets that we were going to encourage people to 
you know, use bikes more often, to use scooters more often. I think that the data is kind of in on that now. And that is not really exactly what happened. It was, you know, a lot of tourists who use them or a lot of people who are the types of people who would generally be in the tech industry were using them. Not so many, not so much like the more marginalized communities, the people who wouldn't be using these things as often. And I guess the secondary promise there was also that by having these um, vehicles on the streets, we would kick off a discussion about, you know, whether this is what our street should look like, whether we should have more space for you know, um, scooters and bikes and what have you. And certainly we need that. But I don't think that that's actually had the kind of effect that we wanted it to have. I don't think that just by flooding the streets with these scooters, um, we've really had this like huge change in how we think about the streets. Rather, it's just made the streets and in particular the sidewalks less accessible for people who most need them because people who are coming up, who are coming up with these ideas you know, don't generally use the sidewalks anyway, right? Uh, so it didn't matter if you blocked them because they weren't having that negative experience created by the solution that they thought up to this problem. And I would say, you know, I think one of the reasons that micromobility in particular emerges, like, you know, we've been talking about how a lot of the tech industry's solutions to transportation problems really come from or, or really are focused on the car and how they can, you know, do things with the car. Um, but micromobility is is kind of distinct from that. And I would argue that part of the reason is that the initial idea for micromobility comes from China, not from the United States or from Europe, right? Um, they emerge in China a couple of years before, you know, the Western companies like Bird really get started. And so these Chinese companies do launch in Europe and North America. To some degree, they're pulled back before the North American ones are launched. And then there's like this this kind of war for which company is going to take over uh, all of these cities with the with the bikes and scooters and stuff. But I think the essential the essential point there is really if we were going to look at what was going to encourage more people to use active mobility, to use scooters, to use bikes, things like that, is it really flooding the streets with this kind of tech solution that you need an app in order to use and then pay every time you want to use it? Or would it actually be, you know, to build the infrastructure that makes it accessible to people to put in subsidies that make it easy for people to access a bike, to get their bike repaired, to buy a scooter, what have you, and actually to ensure that there's like safe parking so that people can not feel worried if they're going to leave their bike somewhere um, that it's going to get taken or whatnot, right? And and you can even have like the docked bike share services uh, in cities as well because they have found to last much longer um, to actually get the kind of usage that you want to get out of that sort of system in the way that the docked uh, systems don't. Uh, and so I think we can clearly see, you know, in the examples like cities like Montreal, for example, like Paris in particular, which has had this big surge in cycling during the pandemic, post-pandemic, whatever you want to say. The pandemic isn't over. I shouldn't say post-pandemic. But, you know, it, over the past couple of years, because the government has really taken concerted action to promote the use of those things and to reorient the streets so that people have the space to do that, right? And that is really how you encourage it, not just by flooding the streets with a bunch of like disposable scooters, just because a tech company has a ton of money all of a sudden they think they're going to capture a new market this way yeah and it feels like in the west specifically the united states and as you are all too familiar with canada it feels like these decisions more and more are influenced by silicon valley tech ceos like elon musk 
and Eric Schmidt who lobby government officials and end up promoting their vision for the future of clean energy, which ignores marginalized people and people of color and urban communities. And these clean energy technologies include everything from solar panels to Tesla cars. So can you explain what the actual vision is here and where the biggest fault lines lay? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I would just say like on that point about the kind of influence of the tech companies of the Silicon Valley CEOs on the decisions being made by our public officials for planners, whatever around, you know, what should happen in the city. That is a serious problem and it's an ongoing problem, right? And as I said earlier, like one of the contributions of these new Uber files that are being published right now by The Guardian and 40 other media organizations is really to show how easy it was for Uber to get in the room with so many politicians and powerful figures in order to rewrite laws and to get their idea of how transportation should work kind of accepted um, because you know, it promoted itself as innovative as this was the future, blah, 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 all these sorts of things that we're told make sense, you know, that we should believe in. And so it was very easy for them to do that. And we can continue to see it with Elon Musk and how even though he has these incredibly stupid ideas for tunnels, you know, like mayors across the United States still want to talk to him and like get involved in this stuff, right? Like, I'll just give one example because it's just, uh, it's absolutely wild to me. But in Fort Lauderdale, this like, I don't know, this municipal government, the city government, whatever you want to call it, I believe it was Fort Lauderdale, wanted a replacement tunnel for their train because the bridge was like really old and was going to fall down. And so they needed a new tunnel. And so they wanted it on the cheap because, you know, of course they did. And so they went to the boring company because they heard that Elon Musk makes cheap tunnels. That's the whole that's the whole selling point. Right. Um, And so when they finally signed on the dotted line with the boring company, it wasn't for a tunnel for a train, but rather a tunnel for Tesla's to go to the beach. Um, and so, you know, it, it shows how the ideas of people like Elon Musk really influence the infrastructures, the ideas of transportation that are being implemented in cities. And so I would say to, to you know, broaden it out to your question, the issue here is that these ideas are not actually addressing the serious problems that we actually have, right? The serious problems that exist that need to be addressed, that should be addressed, but require political solutions, not just new technologies to be grafted onto what what already exists, right? Um, and so if we think about the climate problem, like we have all of these issues that we need to address in order to, you know, really address climate change so that we don't have runaway warming that's going to cause a lot of problems, a a lot of death, a lot of harm to a lot of people. Um, But, you know, we have these people like Elon Musk, these people who are really influential, who are trying to delay real action, because ultimately, they won't be the ones that will be hurt by it, right? And so you can have these visions from someone like Elon Musk, where, you know, you don't really change the way that cities are built, you don't really change the way that the transportation system works, you just electrify, right? So you put some solar panels on the home, you have an electric car in the driveway or in the garage. Um, you have your little tunnels for your car. Maybe instead of a, a Tesla Roadster, you buy a Cybertruck over time. And then as society slowly starts to break down, you know, you have your kind of gated community with your renewable energies, your rooftop solar panels or, and what have you. You have your tunnels to get you where you need to go. And you have your cyber trucks to plow through the masses that that are really angry at you and they can't even shoot your windows because they're supposed to be bulletproof. Hopefully that doesn't work in the end. Um, <laughs> but and then if you think more broadly, like, you know, obviously that's kind of a dystopian vision of where things can go. Right. And you might say, OK, that's that's a bit too far. You're going a bit too far there. 
But still, like, if you think about kind of the bullshit that we've been sold, maybe we should start thinking about the worst case scenarios if these tech billionaires and these tech companies can just do whatever they want. And the other piece of that is how, you know, these digital solutions, these ideas of like app mediation are being integrated into so many other aspects of society with these ideas of the smart city. Um, And then so like, what is the consequence when so many of the stores that we visit, so many of the services that we access are mediated by these digital solutions, by these automated systems, and then, you know, we get locked out of them, or, you know, maybe you don't have a smartphone, or maybe you don't have a certain amount of money, or maybe you've been deactivated for some reason from the system and you can't find a way to get that fixed in the way that Uber drivers get kicked off the app because they get a bad rating, or, or someone lies just so they get a refund and don't have to pay for the ride, any of these sorts of things. And, you know, you don't have the power because of how the system is set up. And so you can't actually get these things fixed in, in a serious way. And so my real concern is that we're being sold these false solutions to these real problems that exist. And if we believe those promises that are not delivering, then what we can actually do is rather than solve these problems, we can actually entrench them, make them worse and have cities and and societies that, you know, are even worse for most people, but better for people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and whoever. So they don't really care. (laughs) I, I don't I uh, I subscribe to that dystopian vision unfortunately I mean that is the individualism that is being expressed that, that we're actually watching yeah. we're actually watching through technology the individual is it's being disguised as something that's supposed to be marketed as I'm helping the world but you're really just helping your individual which is why I, I would love to wrap this up with a optimistic type of optimism <laughs> because I, I do appreciate the conclusion that you draw from the entire thing and something that I bring to my students quite often, which is the Ursula K. Le Guin's carrier bag theory. And I love this theory. And it was actually the theme of this year's Venice Biennale, which was I thought was amazing, which is this misguided historical knowledge of what was the first human tool that everybody says, oh, it was the hand tool, it was the cutting device, it was the weapon, it was the spear. And Ursula K. Le Guin in an essay and, and argues very well that, no, the first tool is the bag. It was the, the, the way that we could carry items, people, and the woman's womb is really the first carrier. And that's the tool. That's human. That's humanism. And so when I hear the, the carrier bag theory, I think collective. I think buses. I think mass transit. And I think about how sad it is that Florida doesn't get their their train system, that they get individual cars. So I'd love for you to just uh, talk to us a little bit about the optimistic, what we can do to to bring uh, an equitable future in terms of how transportation may work. Yeah, I, I love Le Guin's work. Like, you know, huge fan. I, I, I would yeah, say like, you know, too. I'm not <laughs> like a Le Guin scholar. I haven't read absolutely everything that she's ever written. But, you know, uh, I've read some real great stuff, right? And so when I went to like approach this kind of final chapter of the book and and how we're kind of reframing how we're thinking about transportation, but also technology and, and you know, the society that we live in, I drew a lot from some of the things that Le Guin has written. And actually in the initial draft, there was more of that in there. And my editor was like, listen, I know you like Le Guin, but we need to cut it back a little bit. Like, you know, you go on a bit too long. Release yeah. the Le Guin cut. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I was like, okay, okay, like we'll we'll refocus it, right? Um, but yeah, so you know, I, I think that Le Guin and and her kind of writings on these topics allow us to think in a different way about technology, what actually counts as technology, you know, in in the way that we that that technology gets framed right now by these tech companies, you'd assume that like 
the internet is technology. These digital solutions are technology. These like AI systems that they're trying to build out are technology. But a lot of the other kind of more mundane technologies don't count, right? They're, they're, they can't be seen as progress or, or anything like that because they're not the things that are driving these companies forward and that benefit these companies. So it needs to be framed in a particular way. And, you know, as, as you say, kind of drawing from that carrier bag theory, it's also the kind of reorienting away from this individualist mindset, this how do we empower the individual? How do we have, you know, the great man drive society forward? And how do we actually look at the collective solutions that are actually, as I was saying, going to address these serious problems that we have in the transportation system and, you know, in, in, the, broader system, in the broader city, in the broader society, right? Um, and so if we're actually thinking about a transportation and a, and a transportation system in a city that is really going to address the fundamental problems that we face, it has to be around these collective forms of transportation, right? Making these serious investments in the transit system so you can get people out of cars, so you can give people the freedom of not having to own a car um, and they can actually get around and connecting that kind of transportation system within the city up to a, a train system or a transport system that it can actually get you beyond the city as well, right? Um, actually, actually having like a proper train network that can get you places that's reliable um, in a way that many of our trains are not in North America right now after decades of disinvestment and of shutting down lines and of reducing service and all these sorts of things, right? Uh, it, it's incredibly important. But then the other thing is also to recognize that if we want to improve our cities, it, it goes beyond just improving the transportation system, right? Improving the transportation system is really important. Investing in transit, um, you know, trying to ensure that people can safely take their bikes, building the cycling infrastructure to make that realizable. But then if you make those improvements, if you make cities that are more walkable where people can actually get to where they need to go, but then you don't change the broader kind of private housing system that we have, the, the broader kind of capitalist systems that our city has been taken over by, all you're going to have is these improved areas where the property prices go through the roof and the people who would most benefit from them get priced out and pushed out to the areas that don't have these improvements anyway. And so that's why we do see some opposition to these sorts of projects in places like Los Angeles because, you know, communities have recognized in other parts of the city where bike lanes have been added, where bus service has been improved, that all of a sudden the price of property in those places increases. Uh, you know, different types of people move into the neighborhood and they get pushed out to areas where they're not so familiar with because, you know, that's where things are affordable again, right? And so, yes, improve the transportation system, but recognize that 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 by creating that to create a better city, to create a better society, it requires dealing with much broader structures than that, you know, making serious investments in public housing um, to create, you know, more communal spaces in our cities, all these sorts of things so that people can actually enjoy and benefit from the type of society that we want to build. Well, thank you. I, I will be highly recommending your book. I actually bought it in hardcover. Um, so thank you. Uh, I'll have that too. Yeah, uh, I, I do love it. And I think it's really important for people to be reading about this because I think it does give us a good concept of what's missing from our future, especially when we're so, I don't think reliance on transportation is going anywhere soon, but I do think that reliance on cars or small objects that are unruly, we can shift our mindset. 
And it, whether that's through climate change or through just capitalism collapsing around us, one way or another, we have to start thinking about the future of transportation. So thank you so much. No, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, having me back on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Thank you. And thank you for continuing to make your excellent show as well. We're, we're huge fans. Thanks so much. A special thank you once again to Paris Marx for a fascinating conversation about the broken promises of Silicon Valley CEOs and the future of transportation. We reference a lot of material in our conversations. You can find show notes of today's episode, including information about Paris Marx, where to purchase the road to nowhere and references in the summary of this show on your favorite podcast provider and at digitalvoid.media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. And so we might say this is an experience of the void.